Hello and welcome to the Church Split and our Unity and Diversity series. My name is Ian Renwick and I am a pastor at Valley Bible Church in Stephen City, Virginia. I appreciate uh, you being here. Will asked me a number of weeks ago to do a series on dispensational theology because it's something that I eat, sleep, live and breathe as far as being a pastor at a dispensational church. And it's something that I wholeheartedly believe in. And uh, who better to teach it than people who actually teach it uh, day in and, and day out. If you haven't watched parts one and two, I encourage you to do so. I'm sure Will can include in the show notes in the description below links to uh, part one and part two of our series. So that way you can get a good idea of the foundation that I've already laid for uh, what a dispensation is, why they're important, why we use it here at Valley Bible and in other Grace Gospel Fellowship churches uh, as a method by which we interpret, handle, preach, teach scripture, and why it's important, and again, why it's why it's valuable. Uh, just to give you a quick snippet of why I think they are important uh, is because of the word oikonomia, and I keep going back to this. Oikonomia, it comes from the Greek word oikos, which means house, and nomia, which means law, and so you get oikonomia, or nomos, which means law, right? You get these two words, you smash them together and you get this compound word, house rules, house law. It's the method or the means by which a household was run in the Roman empire. And there were specific rules, regulations, things of that nature that were hyper important to uh, why um, or how rather a household was run, how the economy how it was run, how the business was run, how the household itself was run, you know, it basically dictated all of the rules. And there were sometimes rule changes, right? Sometimes the Lord was like, oh, well, that's not working too well. Let's switch it to something else. And there was an important way by which these rule changes were disseminated through a household. So the, the citizen or the upper citizen, you know, the Lord, whatever, the legate, would write out how he wanted or what rule change that he wanted. He would hand it to his senior servant or his, his valet, so to speak. The valet would then disperse those rules to the household and uh, lo and behold, a, a rule change would have occurred. And that's really important. We see this time and again through scripture where there's this changeover in how God relates to humanity uh, due to humanity's failures. That was one thing I brought out last uh, in the last video about how it's very important for us to remember that when there's a changeover in dispensation, it's never the fault of God, right? God never fails to live up to his obligations. When there is a rule change or a rule shift, it's always because man has failed in keeping his side of the equation. If you think about it like a math equation, I'm no math nerd, uh, but in, in algebra, there was this, you know, you want to resolve the equation, right? If you don't have all the variables or if all the variables aren't consistent or or that kind of thing, the the equation is nearly impossible to solve or in some instances, in many instances, really becomes quite impossible to solve. And think about a dispensation like a math equation. There is a set of variables and a set of rules that God has laid out on one side of the equation. Right. And God is always faithful to keep his side of the equation. Well, to balance out the variables or to, to resolve the equation or to resolve the phrase, 
we have to look at the other side of the equation, which is us. And if we are not keeping to our obligations, then the equation cannot be resolved and a new equation needs to be written, right? A new expression needs to be written. And that's really what happens in a dispensation is that God always lives up to his side of the rules, his side of the equation, his side of the expression. And man is quite often the one who fails in keeping his side of the, the, the expression. And so we see that there's a reset. You know, you look at Genesis two through three, and there's certainly a set of rules that is given to Adam in the dispensation of innocence that is very different than what he's given in the dispensation of conscience. Some of those elements endure through certainly, but there are a lot that are changed and it's those changes that we recognize in dispensationalism. You see dispensationalism in its, at its core is a theology or a a theological model a systematic theology that recognizes the differences. If, if there's nothing else that you take away from this particular series, take away that, right? That is your one takeaway is that dispensationalism recognizes the differences. Now I'm not going to rehash everything that I went over in the first two videos. There's, there's not enough time for that, but suffice it to say that where we left off in the last video was a discussion of the law, right? We, we see the law given in Exodus 20, and it's expounded upon in the next several books as Moses gets more uh, elucidation, more revelation uh, from God, right? Dispensationalism is all about recognizing, first, the differences, and then secondly, really about the progressive revelation of God's plan throughout the course of history, right? And, and again, I don't mean progressive. I, you hear that today and you, you think... Um, you know, it's a political ideology, right? That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a step-by-step unveiling or revealing of God's plan for humanity throughout the course of history. It's not given to us all at once, right? So it's not a, an instantaneous uh, revelation. It's rather a progressive revelation. So there's progress as God reveals the plan step-by-step-by-step. By step by step. That's what dispensational is, another key tenet of dispensationalism. So one, it recognizes the differences. And two, in recognizing those differences, it takes into account the progressive revelation of God's plan throughout the course of history. That's what we're talking about. And so today, with, with, the, with the conclusion of our examination of law in the last video, we have to ask ourselves, where uh, does the dispensation of law end? Where does it end? Because that's going to determine where the church starts. And and it's important to remember, especially because of the Apostle Paul, he tells us that the church isn't under the law anymore, right? Because the, the law was complete and fulfilled in Christ. And if you have Christ in you, you have the completion or the fulfillment of the law in you, right? And so we are no longer responsible for keeping the law because the law is for Israel, not for the church. And Paul makes that very clear in a number of his letters, right? Specifically Galatians, you look at Ephesians, right? There are these writings where Paul talks about how um, we're not to keep the law anymore because the law is not for us, right? The law was a covenant that God specifically made for Israel to govern them and not for the church. We have a different set of rules. 
right? There's, a, there's this new dispensation. And Paul talks about that quite uh, eloquently in Ephesians 2. Now, we'll get to Ephesians 2 in a moment. But what I really want to talk about right now is where does the church start? Because that's really what we're talking about today. In fact, if we do a review of the seven dispensations or the seven plus one dispensations that I've been talking about for most of this series, then we look, we've talked about innocence, we've talked about conscience, we've talked about human government, we've talked about promise, we've talked about law. And now we're going to talk about the dispensation of grace. It's also called the ecclesial dispensation, the church dispensation, the ecclesial age, the church age. I mean, there's all kinds of different names for it, but they all speak to the same reality. There's this new dispensation that isn't law anymore. It's this new thing. And that's Ephesians chapter two, but where does it start? Now I teach a lot of, a lot of kids classes, especially at like our Awana type group called coach by Christ. We, we, I, I teach to kids quite a bit. And one of the things that I always notice whenever I get an, uh, when I ask a question, right? For example, uh, we were, t- I was, I'm teaching through the book of Mark right now on Monday nights. Uh, and part of what I'm doing is I'm going through the miracles of Christ and I'm, I asked them, you know, I'm teaching them what the purpose of miracles was, why Jesus did miracles and why they were important. Right. I asked them the other day when we were first starting this series through Mark, who wrote the book of Mark, right? I think it's a pretty easy, <laughs> pretty easy question, but somebody went, you know, raised their hand and was like, God wrote the book of Mark. Well, okay. I mean, sure. God inspired Mark to write the book of Mark, but really it was Mark who wrote it, right? It was Mark who wrote it. And that's that, that's that nuanced understanding uh, that I'm talking about here when we ask where the church started, because the really easy default definition of where the church started is a pretty obvious starting point. I mean, if I were to ask you right now, listening, not necessarily understanding dispensational theology, but maybe having read the Bible, maybe having sat in church for a long time. If I were to ask you this question, where did the church start? What might your answer be? I'll give you a few minutes to think about it. But for, for, for most of us, at least, and especially me before I, I sort of morphed into this dispensationalist, I was under the impression that the church started really with Jesus right? With Jesus, because that's the easy answer. But there's a big problem with that. Jesus was very clear into, uh, as to whom he came to, right? Jesus, the salvation for Jesus is to, of, and for the Jews. And that's a big, that's a big deal. Um, and, uh, there is, uh, you know, a, a lot that we can talk about as far as what that actually means. Right, to of and for the Jews, but it's very clear that dispensationally speaking, Jesus didn't come to the Gentiles. Jesus didn't come to the Gentiles. In fact, he's very clear about the fact that Jesus, that he didn't come to the Gentiles. And I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter fifteen. Okay, and in Matthew chapter fifteen, we find an interesting story about Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman, or we could even call say Jesus and the Canaanite woman. It's the same same region. And it's really going to depend on which translation of the Bible you're using. But there's this story that we find here in Matthew chapter 15, which clearly demonstrates that Jesus knew who he came to and why it's important that we have that in mind when we're talking about um, this dispensation of the church. So here we go. 
Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But when he did not answer her a word, or but he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her and said, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. What does Jesus say here? I think think it's very telling. As I said, Jesus knew to whom he was sent. There's no question about it. He knew, and it wasn't to the Gentiles. He says here, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Salvation, as under the kingdom program that Jesus was teaching as part of the law, was two of and for the Jews. Two of and for the Jews. So where does the church start? Right? Where does where does it start? Does it start with Jesus? Well, I would argue that no, it doesn't start with Jesus because he clearly is not has not come to the Gentiles by that story. And that story again is repeated in Mark, I believe. He has not come to the Gentiles. And it's yeah, Mark 7, 24 through 30. It's the same story. So what then? Where then? did the church start? If it didn't start with Jesus, where did it start? Well, if it didn't start with Jesus, it definitely started in the book of Acts. But then that beggars the question, where in the book of Acts did it start? There are three really different views on the book of Acts and where it started. And I think that in order for us to understand uh, what we're talking about here, we have to figure out where that started. Because even... Even looking at an Acts 2 position, there's going to be a different set of rules for the church than maybe, say, an Acts 28 position or even an Acts or mid-Acts position like I am. So, again, in, in the book, if we if we say the church started in the book of Acts and not with Jesus, where did the in, in, in Acts did it start? Well, there are three main positions, and I've already mentioned them. There's Acts 2, which is far and away the largest category, the largest frame of reference that we have, the most commonly held view or most commonly held position on where the church started is in Acts 2. Then there's Acts 28, which is the least held minority position uh, on this issue. And then there's us in the middle, right? This this mid-Acts dispensationalism which is not necessarily as, as minor, uh, which isn't as, uh, which is held to more, I should say, than Acts 28, but it is not held to as much as, say, Acts 2. So what do these different views entail? And I think that's where we're going to spend a majority of our time about in this dispensation about where it starts, okay? I'm not going to start with Acts 2. Because that's, again, it's the most commonly held position. And I bet you if, if, if you didn't say Jesus, 
you might have said Acts 2. Or when I said Acts 2, you've been like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, started at Pentecost in Acts 2. But you might never have heard that it started in Acts 28, and you might have never heard of mid-Acts dispensationalism. I'm going to save that one for last because I think it's the best, right? You know, if I was, I would be lying if I didn't say mid-Acts dispensationalism was the best because I, that's the view that I hold to. And of course, if I hold to that view, it has got to be the best, right? Because nothing but the best for me. Um, I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek, of course. So, Acts 28. Acts 28. So let's everybody turn to Acts 28, and I'm going to show you uh, where they get this. And specifically, they have this cool, um, uh, the one thing they have going for them is that it's easy to remember, okay? Acts 28, 28. So everybody turn to your Bible, or turn in your Bibles to Acts 28, 28. And this is really where, this is the only quiver or arrow in their quiver that they have, okay? It's the only arrow in their quiver. It's Acts 28, 28. So to give you some background and some context, Paul is going to Rome. He has appealed to Caesar about his imprisonment. And he's saying goodbye uh, to some people. And uh, he is talking now in this section with um, with some, some Jews. Okay. Uh, and they are constantly a thorn in his side. Not necessarily the thorn in his side, but a thorn in his side. Uh, and they're they're constantly trying to to niggle at him to get him to admit that uh, you know you have to become a Jew in order to receive salvation, and uh, he calls them uh, you know he he um, he quotes this um, this thing at him at them you know starting in verse twenty six right uh, go to this people and say you will indeed hear but never understand you will indeed see but never perceive for this people's hearts has grown dull. And their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and uh, turn. I would he- uh, and the hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Right? That's what Paul says to these Jews. Right? That's not very flattering about the Jews, first of all, and 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 it's not the first time that this has been said about them. Uh, in fact, Stephen says something very similar in Acts seven. But here's where they hang their hat as an Acts twenty eight dispensationalist. This is where they would hang their hat on when the church started. Because Paul says here, Therefore, because you are a stiff-necked, blind, deaf, and and you know, uh, um, um, unchanging people, this is what Paul, this is the judgment that sort of Paul pronounces upon the nation of Israel. He says, Therefore, let it be known to you, being the Jews that he's talking to, and the nation of Israel as a whole, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So an Acts 28 dispensationalist will say here that this is Paul basically pronouncing the final judgment on the nation of Israel, uh, that they have not received or heard the gospel. And because they have not received or heard the gospel as a nation, right, as a people group, that God is now shifting his focus away from Israel to the Gentiles. Now, this is entirely true that God shifted his focus from Israel to the Gentiles, but specifically to the church. Okay, but it happened, but according to Acts 28, this position, it didn't happen until this very moment. This is when it happened. And so, in Acts 28, they have to assume a couple of things. 
First, they have to assume that the ministry of Paul and the apostles consisted solely of the kingdom, do, the kingdom message and covenantal doctrines spoken of since the world began uh, uh, and by all the prophets. Okay. After Acts 28, Paul writes exclusively of the mystery and the information that was not known before. Okay, so that those are the two positions. And because of those two positions, they have to sort of finagle the dates on some of Paul's writings. So in an Acts 28 position, you might see some later datings on some books than you would more um, conservatively see, uh, say, in an, in an Acts 2 or even in a mid-Acts position because of the fact that they say that Paul didn't write, say, the book of Ephesians after until after right? He gives this proclamation, uh, or some, you know, some other books along those lines, uh, specifically Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, both Timothy's and Titus, right? Those were, uh, only given after Acts 28, which can put them on the later dating side of the spectrum. Um, but like I said, this is a much smaller group. One of the key elements of this group, in addition to the two we've already talked about, is they don't think that the church today fulfills any of the Old Testament prophecies. Um, so I would agree with that. But uh, again, it's um, uh, that is not unique just to Acts 28. That's also unique. To, or that's also uh, something that, that mid-Acts believe. Um, they claim that the church of today did not begin until God revealed it to Paul. Again, I would agree with them. Uh but it is not made known to Paul during his ministry before Acts 28. That I disagree with. Okay. Um, so that that's some of the, the, the wonkiness there. Um, they teach that Paul's early epistles, right, uh, solely, uh, or, uh, solely applied to the church um, containing the new revelation of the mysteries given to Paul, presumably after Acts 28. So again, that's Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, Titus, and Timothy. Um, they teach that the early epistles, right? So those are the later epistles, uh, that they, uh, that they focus on. I said, I think I said early, earlier, uh, but only that the later epistles focus on that, right? They teach that the earlier epistles did not include any information about the mystery or the church revealed, um, as they are in the later ones. And this would include Romans, uh, all the Corinthians or both the Corinthians, I should say Galatians and both the Thessalonians. Okay. So those early, um, uh, epistles did not include any information about the mystery. And I would heartily disagree with that. Um, but that's kind of the Acts 28 position. So only the later, right? Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, Timothy, Titus, uh, included any information about the mystery at all. Whereas Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Thessalonians, those earlier ones did not. Okay. So there's a distinction there. They sort so, the only things applicable to the church in an Acts 28 position, as far as Pauline doctrine goes, are you're going to find in Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, uh, Philemon, Timothy, and Titus. Okay. Most of the stuff in Romans would not, or most of the stuff in the early letters, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Thessalonians would not be applicable to the church, uh, without being first dispensationally considered. So, if someone says, and this is key, that they believe that Paul preached two different messages, then they're an Acts 28 dispensationalist. That being the message of the kingdom, uh, one that's filled with prophecy and that kind of thing, and one that was the mystery, which is the church. Now, again, this is a very minority-held position. Okay? It's a very minority-held position. 
Um, and this is the thing that we have to, that we have to work around. Okay. Being a minority held position, it, and there's a reason for it because there are a lot of problems with it, but they hang their hat on that Acts 28, 28. And that's really the only thing that they can hang their hat on because a lot of their other, the, a lot of the other, um, uh, positions that they hold in an Acts 28 ideology kind of fall apart once you start to examine, uh, the meat of their argument. But I mean, Acts 28, 28, if you were just to hear that, that's a very convincing argument because again, Paul says here, Luke says here that Paul says, therefore, let it be known that, uh, to you that this salvation God has been sent or the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Okay. They hang their hat on that. And that's all they hang their hat on. There's not really a lot of other supporting evidence again, or, or evidence that can't be trumped so to speak, with other biblical doctrine and interpretation. Okay. And that's, that's the key. So, um, and that's kind of a problem, right? Because there's a lot in, especially in Romans and, and in Corinthians and in Galatians and in Thessalonians that is very applicable to the church today because of the uniqueness of the ministry of Paul. Okay. And that's key. A mid-Acts dispensationalist will recognize, or so mid-Acts and Acts 28 both recognize the uniqueness of the ministry of Paul. Acts 28 splits the baby a little bit because they say, well, yes, Paul's ministry was unique, but it was only the second half or the latter part of his ministry that was unique. Otherwise, he was just fit there, you know, like hand in glove with uh, Peter and the 12, right? And that's not the case at all. Right. So uh, a mid-Acts dispensationalist would say, no, Paul's ministry from beginning to end was unique. There, there's there's um, and then, uh, you know, an Acts two would say, well, there's really nothing different about what Paul was saying and what Peter was saying. So Acts 28, um, again, very minority held position. There actually is a good body of work out there if you want to learn more about the Acts 28 position. But that's really what it is, right? They see just like a mid-Acts dispensationalist that there's a distinction between the nation of Israel. There's a difference, right? They recognize the difference between the nation of Israel and the um, the the body, church, the body of Christ, right? So there's a difference between the kingdom, right, which is the bride of Christ, right? There's all this bride imagery. And then there's the, uh, the body of Christ, right? Which is the church. Okay. And there's this cool interplay as we see the body of Christ and the bride of Christ coming together. Right. So there's the, and and there are two different distinct groups. So Acts 28 and mid-Acts do recognize that. Acts 2, not so much. Um, but like I said, there's a lot of positional issues that an Acts 28 is going to have. Uh, and they try to do some fancy gymnastics to get out of some of these conundrums that they find. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with um, some crafty interpretation of some scriptures uh, rather than their plain meaning. Um, but, and, and, and that's large, uh, and that's in large part uh, why there's such a minority held uh, position. An Acts 2 position though, uh, we talked about this. If you guys want to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, we'll talk about Acts chapter 2 uh, and um, why why that's important. So most of us know the story, right? Uh, not so many of us might know what happened in Acts 28 where Paul's on his way to Rome as he's appealed to Caesar, right? And he has this like last, you know, jab in at the, at the Jewish leadership. 
Acts 2, though, we probably know really well, especially if you've grown up in sort of more of a Baptist tradition or something like that, that really harps on the church beginning. I mean, a lot of modern uh, denominations have that, where the church begins in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 uh, is where uh, the Holy Spirit comes down. So the, this, the, the disciples, along with some other people, are up in the upper room. Right, they have been waiting uh, to receive this gift that Christ said they were going to receive, right? And they've been waiting for fifty days. That's right? Pentecost, um, and so um, there's a lot of Jews coming in for the celebration of Pentecost, and uh, there, there's this festival that happens, right? And I think the timing of God is nothing short of of incredible. Uh, because of the fact that on this day, when there are so many Jews from all over the world, all over the Roman world anyway, um, coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival, we have the Holy Spirit come down and indwell for the first time, you know, uh, the 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 Jews that are here and uh, live in them as Christ said that He would, and. Uh, we've got Peter standing up and giving quite a robust uh, and theologically sound sermon. Okay. And there were a bunch of people saved that day. And uh, what's cool about this sermon is that even though there were Jews from all over the Roman world who spoke a multitude of different languages, each person heard it in their own language. That's pretty cool. Right. And so uh, there's this huge there's this huge conversion of a lot of people. But the, the and so the Acts two position will say that it was with the impartation of the Holy Spirit here in Acts chapter two and Sir, Peter's sermon is where the church started. OK, this is where the church started. And there are some pretty convincing arguments for that, right? Uh, an Acts 2 dispensationalist will see the church as a fulfillment of at least a few or some of uh, the Old Testament prophecies regarding Israel. Okay. That's that. So there's this, like I said, there's this blurring of the line of the, of the, of the line between the church and Israel in an Acts 2 position, right? They claim that the church, like I said, ha, uh, began uh, on the Jewish feast day of Pentecost, and that believe and that the believers were baptized when the believers, excuse me, were baptized with the Holy Ghost, with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so again, we see that at the very beginning of Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes down like tongues of fire and rests on the believers in the upper room, and then we have Peter give his big sermon. All right, uh, to a mid or to a, an Acts two dispensationalist, Israel will be restored. Okay, so while there is this kind of this blurring between the lines of of prophecy, right? As to which prophecies are uh, for the church and which prophecies are for Israel, they do believe that Israel uh, will um, be restored, right? God will finish His work with Israel, uh, but Christ in Matthew, in the Gospels of Matthew to John, established the foundations of the church today. Again, which I believe uh, they also believe that Peter and Paul taught the same gospel regarding Christ. So there is no unique ministry of the Apostle Paul, which is a big problem for me. Okay, um, but there's 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 no difference between what Paul was teaching and what Peter was teaching. And I would argue with them just as an aside here. Then why did Paul and, and Peter have a big fight? Right. We learn in Galatians that Paul and Peter got into a big argument if they were preaching the same message. 
why the argument over the message, right? Anyway, we'll get to that in a few minutes. Um, they would take all of the New Testament scriptures as applicable to the church, okay? Even those that were preached to and for the Jews, right? So um, again, there's this blurring between Gentile and Jew in terms of, of application, okay? Uh, or to, to whom the message was given. Right. And then um, um, if a dispensationalist were to say, OK, so if you're if you're talking with the dispensationalist and they say that that uh, Paul and Peter actually preached the same thing, they're going to be an Acts two dispensationalist. OK, or they're going to be an Acts two person in general. That's where the church started. Uh, that's not unique to Acts dispensationalism or Acts two dispensationalism that that's pretty much true through for the whole church. OK. But that's where the church would have started for an Acts 2. So we've got these two extremes. If you were to look at the timeline, right, my left hand being uh, the earliest, my right hand being the latest, okay, the earliest or the furthest to the left on this timeline is going to be the Acts 2 position. The farthest is going to be the Acts 28-28 position, okay? So the furthest to the right. These are the bookends, right, of when the church started. I find myself here where my nose would be, right in the middle. Right. That's that's where I find myself. Um, and specifically, there's a couple of reasons why I find myself here. Because it makes the most sense. We've talked about how there are things about the Acts 28 position that are easily shredded. OK, even by somebody of an Acts 2 persuasion. And there are a lot of holes. There are a lot of problems with Acts 28. There are also a lot of holes and a lot of problems with Acts 2 that are easily shredded by somebody who's an Acts 28 or a mid-Acts person. Mid-Acts really, in my opinion, doesn't have a lot of holes to it. There are some, maybe. But I think that's just more because of a misunderstanding about what mid-Acts says as opposed to uh, an actual flaw in the, in the reasoning. And, and, and I said, this is a model, okay? This is, this is, and it's a man-made model. It's a man-made recognition, just like all systematic theologies are. And so there are going to be some problems in it, but I think the problems are more easily overcome from an Acts two or from a mid Acts perspective than they are from an Acts two or an Acts twenty eight perspective. And here's what I mean: so when we say Acts mid Acts, right, a mid Acts dispensationalist like I am, uh, we say that the church uh, started somewhere in the neighborhood of Acts 7 to Acts chapter 13. So Acts chapter 7 is really important because Acts chapter 7 is where we see um, uh, Stephen's speech. We see the stoning of Stephen. We see, uh, uh, and, and that's important. Stephen's speech is important, okay? Uh, because of the audience that he gives it to and what they do to him, okay? Uh, and so there's Acts chapter 7. And we see there's kind of this shift through until Acts chapter 13, right? There's this new thing that G, that, that Christ does where he um, basically steps in and um, does a revolutionary work. Um, uh, well, actually, that's not Acts chapter 13, but he does a revolutionary work for Paul. And then in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are actually sent out. Okay, so we've got all of this happening between seven and 13. And that's hugely important. Okay. So in Acts chapter, so like I said, Acts chapter seven, 
We've got the stoning of Stephen uh, by the hands of the Sanhedrin. Okay, in Acts chapter nine, we've got the conversion of Paul uh, and uh, the, the radical salvation that he had. And then in Acts chapter thirteen, you've got Paul and Barnabas sent off to go do missions work. Right. That is the window in which we say the church started. Now, I'm not dogmatic enough to say that it's for sure started in Acts 7, and I'm not dogmatic enough to say it for sure started in Acts 13. I'm not even dogmatic enough to say that it started in Acts chapter 9 with the conversion of Paul. What I will say is that somewhere in there, it started. Okay? And and usually, uh, you know, if you, if you hear, there, there are going to be people who take all sides of this, okay? Uh, even in mid-Acts dispensationalism, there are those who bookend it, like we talked about, with the very earliest on the left-hand side being the stoning of Stephen. And on the very right-hand side, they say, well, it didn't start until uh, Paul and Barnabas were sent out. And then there are these people in the middle who say, well, well it happened. It started with the conversion of Saul. I, I'm not, Like I said, I'm not dogmatic enough to take any of those positions, but I am going to tell you that I believe that somewhere in there, in that window, is when God uh, initiated the start of the church as we know it, right? This Jewish Gentile inclusion, this fusion between two people groups into the one new man that Paul talks about in Ephesians two. The reason I think, uh, unlike a, uh, like an acts 28, okay. That the church, uh, or that, that, that's an acts 28 would say that that uh, 20, an acts 28 dispensationalist will say acts 28, 28, is the final proclamation of the judgment of Israel, which, okay, sure. But I think the final, the, the, the judgment that sealed Israel's fate in, in this particular, you know, um, in, in this particular instance was not an Acts 28, 28. It was actually in Acts seven. So when Stephen is stoned, right, who is, who, who does Stephen give this, um, speech to? And I think that that's pretty important. Stephen gives this speech to this final presentation of the gospel to the nation of Israel, uh, being the leadership of the nation of Israel, the Sanhedrin. Okay. And the Sanhedrin rejects out of hand, uh, Stephen's declaration of their sin, of their redemption from their sin, the fact that they killed the Messiah and they still haven't accepted the Messiah's message. And therefore they stand condemned. Okay, that's all of Paul or all of, all of Paul's, all of Stephen's speech, right? And he does this beautiful outline. It's, it's it would make any pastor really proud, right? There's a there's a point, there's a proposition that he's going after, and he goes through and he just nails it, right? The Sanhedrin, instead of taking his message to heart, what they do is they tear their robes, right, and they stone Stephen, they put him to death for blasphemy, right? And so there's this, this, uh, scene that we have where the leadership outright, the leadership of Israel being the Sanhedrin outright rejects the gospel message under the kingdom program. And the reason I say that it's there and not in Acts 28, 28, is because it is not it is not in Acts twenty eight twenty eight that the narrative shifts from Peter and the twelve to Paul. The shift starts at you know somewhere in this Acts seven to thirteen range, because we see Paul or Saul at this point introduced into the narrative, and there's this 
sort of Luke is 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 working as he's writing this. He gets to this point where he's introduced Saul, who was present for the stoning of Stephen, who persecuted the church uh, wholeheartedly, and then has this radical conversion. And we see that there's this shift that starts to happen, right? We start, you know, there's this interplay between um, Paul's story, Saul Paul's story, okay, and the some of the twelve. Right. And so we see Philip in here. If I remember right, we see uh, the story of Peter and Cornelius. Uh, but there's this shift right between what Peter and the 12 are doing and those who are connected with Peter and the 12 and this whole narrative shift toward Paul. After about Acts 13, we really hear very little about Peter and the 12 and the shift becomes all about. Paul and those who work with Paul being Barnabas, Silas, Apollos, Luke, Mark, right? We see, we see all of these guys in here, but we hear very little about Peter and the 12. And it starts here in Acts chapter seven with this proclamation against the Sanhedrin that uh, they are a, a stiff necked people, right? Who have killed the Messiah. And for Stephen to even charge that was kind of a, a big deal because the Sanhedrin was looking for the Messiah. They just didn't think it was Jesus, right? They wanted a military and political leader who was going to deliver them from the hands of Rome, not somebody who was going to deliver them from the hands of sin and death. Very big distinction. And so there's this shift in dynamic where finally in Acts chapter nine, we get uh, Jesus himself coming down and talking to Paul. And now Paul is the one who is given a unique call of God. He is not part of Paul and the 12. In fact, he says in, in many of his letters that I am not of Peter and the 12. I'm not. I didn't get my authority from them. I didn't get my message from them. My message is straight from God. And God was the one who appointed me, not Peter and the 12. Right? My authority does not come from them. My authority comes from God. And I'm not connected with them other than, you know, the fact that we believe in the same savior and that kind of thing. There's a distinctiveness, a difference between the messages of Paul and the messages of Peter. And I think that that's important. Okay. There's a lot more that we could get into that we don't just have time for. I mean, I could spend a couple of hours talking about this dispensation of the church. The point is that at some point the, the church started, whether you're in Acts 2, whether you're in mid-Acts, whether you're in Acts 28, the church started. And the reason that I'm a mid-Acts guy is because I believe that uh, God started this uniqueness with Paul. And in Ephesians 2, he talks about how that this thing called the church that we have today was never revealed at any point in scripture beforehand. It was only revealed to me. It is a unique ministry of my part. And that is the uniqueness of the church, the body of Christ, and this one new man that is neither Jew nor Gentile. And that's Ephesians 2. Paul also talks about it in Galatians. And I think that there's this uh, misunderstanding of, of, the church's role in the grand scheme of things. You see, we're a parenthetical insertion, meaning that we as the church were never part really of the original plan, right? There was this original plan that was put in place 
when Jesus says he's coming soon to the disciples, I think that he meant what he said. He was coming soon. And had the nation of Israel repented and believed in Messiah, I believe we would have seen that 70th week of Daniel. Now we're getting into eschatology, right? It's a whole another can of worms. We would have seen that that 70th week roll right on through. And we would have had the tribulation. We would have had the judgment of the earth. And we would have had the establishment of the millennial kingdom within the lifetime of the 12. But that didn't happen, did it? In fact, there's this pause button that's pushed on the nation of Israel as the church is inserted in. Now this, I know this can sound, and I've, I've heard it accused of recently of being anti-Semitic. And I don't think that that's true by any stretch of the imagination. We're not saying that God is done with the nation of Israel by any stretch. We're not saying that the church has replaced the nation of Israel even. We're saying it's this new work that has been inserted into God's grand plan for salvation and that God will come back to deal with the nation of Israel and fulfill all of his promises to the nation of Israel. It's not anti-Semitic by any stretch. And so we get on to this new dispensation, right? The millennial kingdom. This is the last of the actual dispensations in which there will be any sort of failure. Okay. The, the failure that, we, that we're going to see in the, um, in the dispensation of the church is, not, uh, is, is a failure of unbelief, okay? Let's call it that. It's the failure of, of unbelief. Uh, there are those who, um, who hear the message who don't believe, and, and you know it's just this, this thing of human nature. And what's going to happen is once the number of Gentiles, uh, the scripture is very clear on this, once the number of Gentiles is full, uh, being the the church, once the church is full, right, there's going to be a rapture, as in First Thessalonians, right, and there's going to be this um, uh, insertion of the tribulation, which will be essentially the uh, resuming of the kingdom plan. So the kingdom plan got put on pause. The church plan got parenthetically inserted. Once that parenthetical insertion is taken out in the rapture, now the play button is pushed again on Israel and we see this seven-year tribulation. And there's really important that it's a seven-year tribulation because that last week of Daniel, which we find in the 70 weeks, hasn't happened yet. And if you count the number of years, right, 70 weeks being 490 years, right, as, as, uh, as we can interpret it through scripture and very accurately so, it's very important that it's a seven year tribulation because we have only seven years left. This last week of Daniel, this 70th week, each day being a year, there's this last week of Daniel that gets pushed play again. And now we have the tribulation and we have the judgment and we have all those nasty things in revelation that we see right with the, the bowls and the seals and, and the trumpets and you know, all of that. Right, that that happens after the church is gone. So the church being parenthetically removed kicks off the play button on the millennial uh, on the on the tribulation, which then is the final um, judgment of the world. 
right? And now we have Jesus Christ finally returning, his second coming, where he sets foot on earth and reestablishes his kingdom. Now, this reestablishment of the kingdom is a is the start of the conclusion of God's plan for the nation of Israel, where the, the Messiah, the house of David, will finally come and rule over Israel on the earth. And that's going to happen for a thousand years. And it's during this thousand year reign that Satan is bound in the pit, right? We see that in scripture. Uh, we see that in Revelation where Satan is bound in the pit for a thousand years. And there's this, um, you know, there are believers who are are part of the, the kingdom, right? Uh, who believe in Messiah. Now, these are going to be, you know, people who were left on the earth. There's going to be Jews and but they're all going to believe in Messiah under the kingdom program. The problem here becomes is over the thousand years, there are going to be people who don't believe, right? And so now we get this final battle between, uh, after the thousand years is done, we get this final battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And Satan is released and rallies his forces, right? Those who did not believe, who were under rule of Messiah, but did not believe in Messiah. And all of those who believe in Messiah, they're going to fight. And this is going to be the final battle. Uh, and then we'll have, uh, you know, that's the thousand year reign and under the thousand year reign, Jesus is going to rule in the flesh on earth with an iron rod, right? And he's going to be fair. He's going to be just, it is going to be a period of unprecedented peace. The failure though, here again is unbelief, right? We've got people who are not, who, while they might be living under the rulership of Christ, under the rulership of Messiah, do not believe in Messiah. Okay. And then we've got those people rebelling. And that's at the end of that thousand years where um, Satan is released and they, they have this final showdown where good finally, and I should say timeline wise, finally had triumphs over evil in the meta, right? In the, in the, in the overall scheme of things, right? Cause God doesn't experience time. Like we do evil has already been defeated. Right? We just have to see the fulfillment of that in the way that we experience time. And that will be at the end of the thousand-year kingdom. And that will end with, again, this rebellion, again, this failure on, the ha- on behalf of humanity, not believing in Messiah, not participating in the kingdom program, and aligning themselves with Satan. And that will conclude with a great, great white throne judgment. And then there's this plus one. Right. So I condensed a lot of eschatology down into like, what was that? Five minutes, maybe just to keep this video under an hour. Um, But there's a lot more there. And maybe, you know, maybe I can talk Will into letting me do a a series on dispensational eschatology because that would be fun. Uh, only us theology nerds think that, that, uh, you know, an eschatological model or an explanation of an eschatological model would be fun, but I think it would be fun. Um, but that's a lot of eschatology condensed into what I know five minutes. I spent a lot of time on the dispensation of grace, not a lot of time on the thousand year reign because it's, ironically, it's also very short, right? There's not a lot that we have as far as what that's going to look like or, or how that's going to, you know, other than the fact that Christ will be ruling and reigning on the earth physically, and he'll be doing a good job of it. We don't really see anything, um, um, else about that and good in the sense of like whole complete, um, you know, in the Greek sense of the word good, right? So once that dispensation is done, once the millennial kingdom is done, 
then we have this new dispensation, one that will never end because humanity will finally be able to keep its half of the equation. Uh, it's half of the expression, so to speak. And that will be eternity to eternity future. Right. And we see a beautiful picture of this described in Revelation with the new heavens, the new earth and, and all of that. And, and, you know, worshiping God, having communion with God, doing what we were created to do in the first place. All of that will be an eternity future and this dispensation that will never end. So I hope you've enjoyed this and have uh, learned a lot. And what, what my hope is for this next installment, because Will and I still plan to do an, another another video where we have a chance to sit down and ask some questions. And I've seen, uh, Will has told me that there have been some questions that have been asked. There have been um, some clarifications that have been asked for. And we're going to, um, at some point, put together a list of those questions, you know, prep some answers for you. So that way, you know, they're clear and concise, but I wanted, I do want to go through those questions because there is a lot here. And in just, just this format where we have, you know, 40 minutes to an hour together, there's, there, it's a lot of material. And again, I teach this, I teach some of these sections for weeks because they're, they're just that big. And, uh, I, this is more of a, of a survey, a three hour survey of what dispensationalism is. If you do have questions, again, please leave them in the comments below. Leave them on the Facebook links. You know, if you've got uh, any of our contact information, feel free to uh, email us or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter or wherever. And uh, we'll be more than happy to to add those to the list for our uh, final video on this, uh, which is going to be a, a question and answer interview time with with Will and myself. And it'll be fun. It'll it'll probably go a lot longer than an hour, knowing the two of us and how much we like to talk. But it'll be a good time, I think. And so, uh, again, I hope this has been helpful. I hope this has been a, a great study for you. I know that I've seen a lot of positive feedback. Uh, and, and honestly, sometimes it's really hard to find a good, clear, concise teaching on dispensationalism because we like to get into the weeds. And so sometimes people get lost. And what I've tried to do is I've tried to make this a little less like a track through the wilderness and a little bit more like a walk down a, you know, maybe a, a well-kept a sidewalk or something like that, maybe with some potholes here and there as I take rabbit trails. But I'm trying to make this as clear as I possibly can. So, but it, I'm sure, as Will has told me, there are questions. So please feel free to field us those questions. And uh, if they're good, and, and a lot of them have been, uh, they'll get included in this video. We'll try to answer as many questions as we can in the time limit that we have. And uh, I'm sure it'll be really fun for, uh, Will and I are really good friends and it'll be fun. I think for you guys to see that relationship and, and, uh, watch us as we have a discussion, right. Or try to have a discussion <laughs> as we're, as we're talking with one another. Uh, you know, cause like I said, we both like to talk and, and we're both pastors and, and, uh, that's just like what we like to do. Right. So I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, please again, uh, like this video, share it, subscribe. I'm sure Will would appreciate the subscriptions, hit that little alert bell. Uh, to get notifications when we release new videos and all of that. I, I know Will would really appreciate it, and uh, so would the church split. So without uh, any more beating around the bush, have a great day, guys, and we'll talk soon.